is a uh, Romanian Jew that lived through concentration camp during the Holocaust. And, and I met him 20 years ago in London. When I was studying there, we had a group of us students had dinner with him, and he told us stories that have stuck with me forever, and I will, I will never forget that evening. It was really powerful, but I want to tell you two stories that he told us. One I'm just going to tell you just because, and the other is the point of beginning my, of my sermon. Ellie was a violin virtuoso from very young age. At six years old, he's doing concerts in Prague and Vienna and uh, Berlin and Paris at, in the concert halls of Europe. At, at six and seven and eight years old, he's, he's a celebrity already. Uh, he was born in Romania, but he lived in Hungary, in Budapest. He was in his late teens and early 20s when the Nazis showed up in Hungary and hauled all the Jews off. One of his stories of life in the camp, the Nazis knew who he was. He was a world-famous concert violinist. And they knew who he was in the camp, so they had him provide music for their dinners for the Nazi guards. They'd pull him out of the camp and dress him up and give him a violin and tell him to play music. And on one of these experiences, they brought three of the violinists out of the camp to a dinner banquet that the Nazi guards were having in a banquet hall and they lined him up against the wall and they took the first one through the door and the other two that are out in the hall, they hear him play three or four notes and bang! The music stopped. And they opened the door and they grabbed the second one and said, get in here and play. They played three or four notes, boom! They said, opened the door and the guard said, get in here. And he walks in and there's his two friends lying in a pool of blood on the floor at the head of the banquet table. All the guards just sitting there eating and the, the guard who was at the door put a pistol to his head and he said, play. And he said, I just closed my eyes and I put my bow on my violin and I realized in an instant, he said, I realized they had started to play Jewish songs, which the Nazi guards did not want to hear. And he said, I started to play a German song. And he said, I just closed my eyes and I just played. I just waited for the bullet. And I just played and I played. And he said, I, I played the whole song and I opened my eyes and the guards there in tears because my music was so beautiful while I stand over the dead, bloody bodies of my two friends. That was just an example of the heartless conditions in the camps. I know you know some, or maybe a lot, about the concentration camps and the Holocaust and so on, but I, I want to tell you, to begin what I have to say this morning, I, I, I want to tell you what he told us as a 19, 20, 21-year-old in Hungary as Germany invaded Poland and Czechoslovakia and Austria and, and Hungary was next. And he said, we began to hear rumors about cattle trains full of people being hauled off to concentration camps where they were gassed and then their bodies were burned and their ashes were dumped in the river. And he said that a few of the Jews in Budapest got very scared and in a synagogue on Saturday when they'd have their meeting, they would, they would talk about it like, we have to do something, we have to go, we have to run. And he said, but the vast majority of everybody is like, that is the most preposterous thing we have ever heard. There is absolutely no truth to those rumors. It's just people scaring us. And it's Nazi propaganda to try to get us to do something stupid. And he said, the vast majority of the Jews in Hungary, which was the next country on the list, did not believe it because it wasn't in the newspapers. It wasn't on the radio. They didn't have television, certainly didn't have internet. 
if it wasn't in the newspapers and the radio, uh, then it must not be happening. And they said it just it was it was unthinkable, it was unimaginable that there would be mass murders, trainloads of people being hauled off to be gassed and burned. He said it was just it was too preposterous to believe, so we didn't believe it. But it was happening, and it was being covered up by the Nazis and the press and at the time. And so he said that a few of the Jewish families ran. I don't know if you know, but there were, from the, through the 20s and the 30s, there was lots of Jewish families that came to England and America. Once the war started, they would get anywhere they could go. They would go to Denmark, Norway, Sweden, France, England, some to America, but the, the crossing of the sea was rather hazardous by that point. So there were Jews who took action, but the vast majority of European Jews didn't do anything, even when they were told what was coming. They didn't do anything. And he said, sure enough, one day the cattle train showed up in Budapest, and we were on them. His mother and sisters went to Auschwitz, where they were immediately gassed, He and his dad went to Buchenwald, the one I just showed you. He said, it was too unbelievable to believe until we already knew it was true, until we were already in the train. So he told me that story, the group of students I was in, he told us that story personally 20 years ago in London. If there is one thing we humans are really good at, I mean, it's one of our, one of our top skills. It is denial and de- self-deception. Even I would use the word delusion. We imagine a future for ourselves and a life for ourselves, and not much reality ever gets to encroach on what we think is going to happen. It is a great skill we have to delude ourselves that our plans And our vision of the future is going to come to pass. And even when confronted with the facts, we do not want to believe the truth. We want to believe what we want to believe. Come on. It is a distinct skill that we all possess. That we don't want to believe bad news. When we hear bad news, we think somebody else will take care of it. Tragedy will never happen to me. Old age won't happen to me. My health will never fail. My life will go on as it is right now. We find every excuse for inaction to prepare for the future. We tend to view dramatic negative events as outside ourselves. Well, that would never happen to me. It would never happen in this valley. It would never happen in America because this is America. Now, that's Iraq, but this is America. It won't happen here. It's actually... I think it's a refusal to actually feel fear. We are addicted to peace and pleasure like a drug. So we avoid unpleasantries and we call them preposterous so that we can avoid doing anything about it. You've all heard of the fight or flight syndrome where our body's reaction to stress and our emotional reaction to stress is that our heart rate picks up, our blood pressure increases, we breathe faster, and we are getting ready to run or fight. Do you know that that is a complete myth? You, feel, you do that when you feel afraid, but you don't run or fight. What do you do? You freeze up. 
You don't do anything. Psychologists have studied videos of people in bank robbery situations or convenience store people that get a gun pulled on them or people in a car wreck or people who have, like, soldiers are different because they've had training beforehand and emergency responders and so on, like the firefighters that ran into the buildings on 9-11 rather than away from it. But normal people in our normal brain chemistry and wiring, our brains are not wired to run or fight. Our brains are wired for maintain normalcy. And that actually, most people in a traumatic situation don't fight or flight. We freeze. And we do nothing. In a traumatic emotional situation or a physical danger situation, most people freeze. Even shock that somebody goes into when they've been wounded or in a car wreck or even when somebody close to us dies, sometimes people will go into physical shock. I know that it has lots of, uh, of causes and symptoms, but one of the things it is is our brain is shutting down. It's extreme denial. Our brain will not accept that this much bad stuff just happened. So we erase memories and we go into shock because we cannot handle bad stuff. Actually, we don't fight, we don't run, we freeze up and refuse to make a decision or take action. Back to 1939, World War II. September of 1939, the Nazis invaded Poland. They had already taken Austria and Czechoslovakia through negotiations and and secretaries of states and meetings and summits and such. Neville Chamberlain, who was the Prime Minister of England, he's the poster boy for failed leadership because he kept giving Hitler what he wanted, thinking that Hitler would eventually stop making demands, which never happens. Don't ever appease evil. Fight it. Don't ever give in. Um, Neville, Never Chamberlain is literally he's the historical poster boy for, for buffoon because he, he continued to just give in. He said to Hitler, and France also said to Hitler, England and France said, if you invade Poland, we will declare war on you. And Hitler didn't think they would, and so he invaded Poland, September 1, 1939, the beginning of World War II. And the next nine months in England are still known in history books today as the phony war because nothing happened. Hitler was right. Neville Chamberlain was a coward. And the British people didn't really want another war. They'd just lived through World War I earlier. French didn't want another war, and Hitler knew it, and he was bullying, and he, he knew so for nine months, nothing happened. France literally did nothing. England threw, threw a few bombing runs over Berlin, but it really wasn't anything the German Air Force couldn't handle. The British people in London, they went on to the theater, and they went to church, and they acted like nothing had gone on. A British member of parliament said, we have found a new way to fight war where no one dies. This is the first nine months of World War II. They're about to go into the biggest, deadliest war in world history. And he says, hmm, war's over. We find a new way to fight. Nobody's going to die. People just pretended like there wasn't anything going on. In Paris, France, which was only 100 and so miles from the front, they acted like nothing's going on. The French army sort of reinforced their lines against Germany, but they didn't do any fighting at all. They didn't make, start making tanks. They didn't start loading ammunition. There was one little bulldog in England that kept barking, barking, barking at anybody that would listen. His name was Winston Churchill, and everybody hated him. Everybody hated Winston Churchill because he was stupid. He's like, shut up. 
And he would use, if he, if he could get a microphone, he would say, we have to prepare, the Germans are building for another world war, we have to be ready, we have to take action. And the British public's like, we don't want to take action, we're afraid we don't want to do anything. It's not fight or flight, folks, we freeze up and we don't do anything. Winston Churchill was one of the most hated politicians, members of parliament in Britain until in one day, Germany sweeps over Belgium and Holland and into France and into Denmark and all of a sudden everybody wants to know what Winston Churchill has to say and they put him in charge because he was the only one with the guts to speak up and say, we better take action even when we are faced with credible threats. We don't do anything. We act like tomorrow will be the same as today. It'd be really nice if real life had a background soundtrack. (laughs) God, could you please just kind of like give me a doo-doo, doo-doo, doo-doo. If something's about to happen in a few days, you know, just, just let me know. There is no background music in life. When Will and Freedom were really young, three, four, and five, it was so cute, it was hilarious. If music started in the movie, Will was like, Dad, what's going to happen? Dad, Dad, what's going to happen? And he would run behind the couch and he would cover his ears, but he'd peek over the top. And he'd watch, but he'd cover his ears so that he couldn't hear the scary music. It was so cute. The scene in Swiss Family Robinson where where they're battling the boa constrictor in the water. That was the most terrifying thing they could possibly imagine. And then when they throw the coconut bombs at the pirates, Will would die behind the couch. (laughs) God, can we please have some background music? Can you let us know when we need to take action? Guess what? He has given us background music. They're called the prophets. He has sent his prophets to the church and to the world and to the nation saying, listen up! God's about to take action. Come on. There is background music. There is warning. It's called the prophets and the apostles. Next picture is Admiral James Stockdale. He's a Navy pilot in the Vietnam War. He's the highest ranking American to be taken prisoner of war by the North Vietnamese. Spent seven and a half years in the Hanoi Hilton. North Vietnamese prison camp. Seven and a half years. He broke his back as he ejected from his cockpit. And uh, the North Vietnamese made sure that that did not heal in seven and a half years. For seven and a half years, he spent his time in a three by nine concrete bunker with a light bulb that was on all the time to make sure that he didn't know when night and day was. He was beaten, shocked, stretched, had his legs broken, his shoulders pulled out of socket. At least 20 physical beating kind of interrogations over seven and a half years. Those of you who were alive at the time, you remember the North Vietnamese used to use our soldiers in propaganda videos. They would force them to apologize for the war and and, uh, do pro-communist propaganda during the war. Stockdale was a prize prisoner because he's the most, he's the highest ranking officer they've got. So he he got word that he was to be used in in a parade in downtown Hanoi. He was going to be put in a wagon in a cage and paraded, and then that was going to be filmed to embarrass America. So he took a wooden stool and he beat his face beyond recognition so that they couldn't use him. He, he led the men in codes and 
communications through the prison and ingenious system of tappings and getting messages in and out and letters in and out. He, took, he communicated with his superior officers through letters to his wife, secret codes that he included in the letters. This is a genius of a guy. I don't think he knew the Lord, but he's a, very, he's a great man. He found out that they had slit the wrists of one of his men in the prison, one of the cells down the row. They'd slit the wrists to send the message, if you do not cooperate, if you do not submit, we will kill you. So Stockdale slit his own wrists and said, I, and to tell them, I would rather die than submit. That's just the kind of guy he was. After seven and a half years, this is when he landed in American soil. This is seven and a half years it was gone from his wife and kids. His legs were both broken. His back was broken. He never stood up straight the rest of his life. He never could walk correctly. He did have a public life. He was Ross Perot's vice presidential candidate, if you remember those days. That was a long time ago. Stockdale wrote a book about his experiences. And he says, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted once, not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which, in retrospect, I would not trade. He says, I would not trade that experience. That's amazing. He was asked, is there a common defining characteristic among those who died in the camp? And this is his exact quote. Oh, that's easy. The optimists. The optimists were the ones that died. Oh, they were the ones that said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And the Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving. And then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. If they got meat, they would say, we're being fattened for release. If the torture stopped for a few days, they would say, we're being healed up for release. And then it didn't happen. And they died because of false hope. He says, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever that might be. Stockdale says, we must have faith that we will overcome and that we will win. But faith does not mean we are not brutally honest about the facts, about what we are going to have to get through to win. Come on. Positivity will kill you. Real faith will save your life. Hopefulness will kill you. Perseverance will save your life. Denial will kill you. Honesty will save your life. Come on. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality. I have so much honor for this guy. I didn't know him, obviously. I, I don't know that he's a Christian guy, but he has some strength and some fortitude that a lot of us need. Faith and honesty are not mutually exclusive. In fact, to have real faith, we have to be brutally honest about what it is we need faith for. If you're in denial about the facts, you are not in faith. If you are in faith, you will be very honest about why you need to be in faith. That's all just introduction. <laughs> just laying the groundwork for where we're going this morning. The winter of 99 and 2000, when we lived in Cove, I was reading a book and I got the scripture of Ezekiel 33, which is the call on my life. 
God, through this scripture, he put me on the floor and I was there for hours, sweating and breathing hard and trying to resist him. Like, no, God, I do not want this responsibility. I do not want this call on my life. I was a school teacher in Elgin. I had zero hint of a idea of a dream of a inkling that I would ever be a pastor. Never. It crossed my mind at all. But God used this passage and he says, Mitch, this is who you are. Ezekiel 33, 1 through 11. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, when I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and they make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. If the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, then the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any persons from among them. He is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn that wicked man from his way, then that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turns from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for you, why should you die? O house of Israel. Like I said, winter of 99, 2000 at some point, I was on the floor and God said this to me. And I'm like, God, I don't want that responsibility. I don't want to be your, your uh, warning guy. <laughs> don't put me on the wall. Somebody else blow the trumpet. But uh, I couldn't get out of it. And uh, I had no idea what it meant. I had no idea what it looked like. I just know that I'm responsible to, before God to say what I see. And there are some things I need to say this morning that I've seen for some time and I have not wanted to say them because I, I don't want to make anybody mad. I don't want to scare people, but the watchman has to blow the trumpet. You can do what you want with it. I'm not here to tell you that I know everything and I have all the answers and I've got it all figured out and no, 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 no. If you disagree with me, I'm fine. We're still friends. You do, you do, your life. I have responsibility before God to say what I see. I have to blow the trumpet. And I, it's, it, I've just got to do it. I can't wait any longer. And what I need to say this morning is that you need to prepare for the future. Stop ignoring the warnings. Stop say, saying it's preposterous. It won't happen here. There's stuff on the way that we need to prepare for. And we have this idea that preparation equals paranoia. You know, get your guns and your gold and store up your freeze-dried food and, and wait for the end of the world. But preparation is a command of God. Check out Proverbs 22.3. A prudent person foresees danger and takes precautions. The simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. Proverbs 27.12 says almost the exact same thing. The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. And Proverbs 15, 12 says, A scoffer resents instruction. He or she will not consult the wise. I have a dream that I need to tell you about that I had probably three weeks ago. I didn't know if I was supposed to tell the church. 
I just tell you this morning, and you can take it with whatever grains of salt you want to take it with. But I have dreams that I don't remember. I have dreams that I remember, but I don't understand. And then once in a while, I have a dream that is very clear and alive, and I am in it. I mean, I am in it, and it is alive and real and full color, and it, it, it's God. And I wake up, and I know what it means. When I know what it means, I assume that it's God telling me something. So three weeks ago or so, uh, Donald Trump and I were walking down the street, and I know that someone is behind us trying to kill him. And I am trying to get him to hurry to safety. And he is totally at ease. He's completely relaxed. He's smiling. He's joking with me. He even winked at me a few times. And he's so totally not concerned with this person that's trying to kill him. And I knew I wasn't in danger. It was him. We didn't see the person behind us, but we knew we were being followed, and he was going to be murdered. And we keep walking through streets, corners here and there, and we turn, and, and we go up a gangplank onto a Navy ship, some great big giant metal destroyer, battleship, whatever. And that I know in my dream, I just, you just know things that you know in a dream. You know, who knows why you know what you know, but you do. I knew that this was his campaign headquarters. And there's people all over the ship. And he is so totally relaxed and at ease. He's calm. This, I'm safe. I'm safe. And I am, I'm not worried, but I'm urgent. Like, we have to get you to safety. And he is not at all urgent. We walk through the ship and, and go through passageways. And, and then there's a solid steel wall with no door in it. But he pulls out a key and he opens a door in a doorless wall. And we go through into a room that looks like a movie set of a movie that has like a CIA operation or FBI, you know, just there's screens and all these people and they're on the phones and they're looking at, you know, all the, you know, Jason Bourne, you know, just control center kind of a place. And there's all these people doing this manhunt on the person that's after Trump and it's his security team. And I know that it's the best in the world. And they have complete confidence, and they're all urgent and busy and working. Trump is laid back and relaxed, uh, letting them do their job. And a white man and an Asian woman, I can see their faces. The white guy was short and bald and a little pudgy, and she's taller than him, and she's got, I mean, she's dark hair, she's Korean or Japanese. and, And they pack their pistols, and they run outside to go take care of the guy who's coming. And they're not gone 30 seconds, and they come back bloody. They have been destroyed. They're not dead, but... They're really, really bad shape. And right behind them, they're, they're brought in by some other agents, and right behind them, the door gets blown off its hinges, and into the room comes a 9 or 10-foot thing. It's not human. It's, it looks like a human form, but it's not human. And everybody in the room starts unloading their pistols at it, and he's swatting the bullets out of the air. Just... And puts everybody on the floor, throws them against the wall on the floor, everybody except me and Trump. Trump is here, I'm here, and this nine or ten foot tall thing is here. And I, I know it's a spirit in my dream. I, again, I just know there is a spiritual hit order on Trump's life. And I, I, I knew that nobody in the room had the weapons to deal with this except me. Everybody's pulling their guns out, and this thing has to be addressed in the name of Jesus. And so in my dream, I put my finger up at it, and it's like this. I, and if this happened in life, I would be terrified. I was not all that scared in my dream, but I'm just telling you, I'm not that tough. 
if a demon appeared to me nine feet tall in front of me, I might be speechless. In fact, I've woken up from dreams and I can't speak. I don't, I don't know if you've experienced that, but there's times in my dreams I've tried to speak and I can't. I'm, I don't present myself as any paragon of boldness here. But in my dream, I stuck my finger up in that thing's face and I wanted to say, I command your death in Jesus' name. I wanted to kill it, but I wasn't allowed to. Uh, that could not come out of my mouth. I just said, in the name of Jesus, I command you to leave here and go back to hell where you came from. And it just dissolved into nothing and disappeared. And I woke up. I woke up knowing there is a spiritual hit on Trump's life. I am not here to say that you should vote for him or even that he's God's choice for the next president. Lots of prophets are saying that. I am not. I know why some of you are never Trumpers. I get that. I'm not here to say we need to pray that he lives so he can be president. I'm not saying that. But God made him for something, and hell wants to stop it. I know that I know that I know that I know that. I don't know that he's going to be the next president. I don't mean that he, I don't know that he's meant to be the next president. Uh, I'm not endorsing him or campaigning or anything. I, I don't know. I know that I know that I am to pray for him. That whatever his purpose is that God has for his life, Satan is trying to end it. And there's a spiritual order to kill him. So in the last three weeks, I've been praying that no weapon formed against him will prosper and that whatever God's will is, whatever that is, president or not, I don't know and I don't claim to know or want to. I'm just saying that God, he's a man that God made and loves and God made him for a purpose as well as he did you and I. And uh, whatever that purpose is, Satan wants to stop it. Thursday morning, I had a vision I was, it was two or three in the morning, but I wasn't asleep. I was awake on the couch, but I was sort of half asleep, half awake, but I wasn't, I wasn't dreaming, but I wasn't imagining it either. I was seeing it. it was, I'd have to call it a vision. I don't have very many of those, in the, but it was in the, sort of that half awake, half sleep state, and I had seen some news footage of the Milwaukee riots in the, the day or two previous to that, so as dreams do, these things sort of come back up in your mind in your sleep. But I saw, I was awake as I saw this, and I was praying consciously, different than when I'm dreaming. I saw a dragon, a very, very long, large dragon, but sort of like a snake. It didn't have really legs or wings. It was like a big snake, but with a dragon's head, like we know what a dragon would look like. But, you know, the stereotypical dragon head that Hollywood would produce in Lord of the Rings or Pete's Dragon or whatever else. This thing was enormous, and it was swimming across America in the soil. It was slithering like a snake, but it was swimming in the dirt. It was not on top. It was half surfaced and half underneath. I knew that this was, it was racism, and it was trying to cut our country in half. It was literally swimming across America to cut us in half, to divide us. And the part about it being half visible and half not is that what we're seeing is only half of the story. Satan's doing even more than we can see on the surface with these riots and Black Lives Matter and all that stuff. Again, I I don't tell you these things every week because they don't happen every week. When they do, I, I, I know it was real. I know I saw it and I know it's God. Communicating with me 
and I'm just telling you so you can join me in prayer. Whatever happens in November, we are in for some major chaos. If Hillary gets elected, God have mercy. Whatever we have been, we will not be again. And uh, people are talking civil war and gun confiscations, and I don't think that'll happen because I think people will hide their guns and be too cowardly to use them. But if Trump gets elected, he is not our savior. And there will be riots that make Ferguson and Milwaukee look like elementary school recess because the left is not going to sit down and take his election peacefully and say, oh, well, yeah, he's our president. That's not going to happen. President Obama said three weeks ago he would not accept a Trump election. What does that mean other than he won't accept it? What does that mean? There is a prophecy out there that the current president is even going to allow an election to happen. But even if one happens, President Obama said, these are his exact words. He said, in 2008 and 2012, I was right, and Romney and McCain were wrong. But if they'd been elected, I would have accepted it. That is not the case with Trump. Those are his exact words. If McCain or Romney had been elected, I would have accepted it. That is not the case with Trump. That's a quote. Regardless of what happens, hell has some big plans for America. And we're here to talk about it this morning with brutal honesty so that we can have real faith and take real action to be the church of Jesus Christ instead of just calling it faith, but really it's just terror and we're going to see what Jesus does. Come on. We're in for some rough stuff. I don't pretend to know what might happen, but we're in for some rough stuff. We've got problems. I'm sure most of you have noticed. We have problems. Racism and greed are destroying America. I want to show you a quote from Black Lives Matter website. Just this week they put up their manifesto, and here's a quote from it. We need to send the police home and start over. These institutions cannot be incrementally reformed. They need to be disarmed and disbanded. How can we do this? In one place, then in many, then everywhere. Hashtag revolution. Hashtag disarm the police. Hashtag dismantle the police. Hashtag we are all better off without them. Jesus said before he comes, lawlessness will increase so much that there is utter chaos. Well, there you got people who are intentionally wanting to create it. That is the definition of lawlessness. They want to get rid of the police. We've got a military that's gutted financially and has old technology and women quotas being forced into military combat units and we've got a destroyed family culture in our entire country. Generations of people raised without a father, Sex has been completely undefined. We've got people who have no real life skills outside of a system of our economy. We depend on the grocery store and the gas station and OTEC, and if we don't have those things, we couldn't live. All of the normal skills for all of human history for survival of growing food and preparing it and taking care of ourselves, they're gone. We could not live without electricity and gasoline. We're the fattest, unhealthiest people to ever live on the planet. 
our kids are completely uneducated in anything that matters, but they're socialized in all the liberal issues. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who spent time in a Soviet gulag in the Soviet Union, he said there are two signs that show the end of a civilization, and it is decadence in art and a lack of qualified statesmen. Are we there? We're there. Sarah and I happened to watch the tail end, the last 90 seconds of the Teen Music Awards with Miley Cyrus, and it was violating to our souls. What was happening over a... I couldn't even tell you in public what she was doing over a crowd of teenagers. In 50 and 40 and 50 and 60 years, we've gone from the Brady Bunch and the Beach Boys and even Home Improvement to Game of Thrones and The Bachelor and Miley Cyrus and The Weeknd. We've got a mass of people on welfare that is too large to turn around. We've got 50 years of human sacrifice and hatred of children. I have on the screen for you a quote from the director of the Sierra Club, which, if you're a Democrat, is a mainline environmentalist group, not terrorists like Greenpeace. This is pretty mainline for Democrats. But their executive director said recently, childbearing should be a punishable crime against society. Unless the parents hold a government license, all potential parents should be required to use contraceptive chemicals, the government issuing antidotes to ch- citizens who are chosen for childbearing. That's Nazis, folks. This is what in the 20s and 30s is called eugenics, the selective breeding of humanity. They're doing it in the name of climate change. They're claiming it in the name of climate change rather than evolution. But it is exactly the same thing. We want the government to chemically sterilize every young girl and then choose who gets to have a baby. Just last week, NPR Radio interviewed a medical ethicist from Johns Hopkins University that said we should begin selective breeding in the United States to reduce, he called it population engineering. We should start population engineering to reduce the population of the world to one billion people. Johns Hopkins University is about as reputable as it gets in the established medical system. And he's their medical ethicist saying this is what we need to do. These are not political issues, folks. These are moral issues. This is godliness and wickedness. It has nothing to do with Democrats and Republicans. We've got a church in sexual backslide. We've got a church in democratic rebellion. Without submission to anointed leaders and sound doctrine, we've got a church that refuses to submit to the judgment of God, and we even tell the world that there isn't such a thing. If you're not brutally honest, if you don't fully admit or see that we are in complete cultural meltdown, you're too young or too uneducated to know what it used to be like. If you think this is new, though, you need to be reminded that this is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. But on the flip side of that, there is scripture that says it will get worse and worse. From 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, evil and men and impostors will grow worse and worse. Until we get to the point where Jesus said, the last days will be the worst in history. Such, Jesus said, such has never been before. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, speaking of these people in this list of sinners, he says, they invent new ways of doing evil. Is that not true in America? 2016, we invent new ways of doing evil. Jesus 
and Paul and Peter and Jude and James all reference Old Testament stories and Paul and Jesus both say there are warnings to us about what God is going to do. Several times, Jesus and Jude and Peter specifically bring up Sodom and Gomorrah. That there is a point where a group of people rebel against God to the point where God is done. Individual people are never unredeemable. Okay, let me say that again. Individual people are never unredeemable. They can always repent and be saved. But Jesus didn't die to save America or our culture or our economy. So there will come a point where that will end. And Jesus is not interested in saving it for our comfort. Come on. He did not die to create the American culture. He died to redeem sinners out of their sin. You hear me? Sodom and Gomorrah got to the point where God said, this system, this economy, this government, this morality, this group cannot exist anymore. I've given the individual people time to repent, and they won't listen to Lot. They won't listen to Abraham. We're done. He did the same thing with Noah. He did the same with Israel, and he did the same thing with Judah. There comes a time when a culture reaches a point of no return. Individual people can always be saved. But nations, governments, and cultures become so evil that God has to bring it down so that he can build it back up again. Romans 1 and 2, there's a passage, and in that passage, God says what he does. He says he gave them over to their own depraved mind. Really, our judgment will be the fruit of our own decisions. We will eat what we planted. James says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sowed. So I had a Christian man tell me a year or two ago, well, I didn't do any of this stuff. Well, you live here. We're all going to go through it. Jesus didn't stand in heaven and say, well, sorry, you made your bed, lie in it. He came down and he paid the price with us. Come on. We cannot sit in this room and judge the world outside and think that we're separate and holy. God will somehow take it out on them, but there won't be a cost for us to pay. That's love, folks. Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, the beginning of the book of Isaiah, God issues a warning to Judah, to the prophet Isaiah. And I'm going to read some passages to you from that. And then in chapter 6 is the famous vision where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And God says, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, send me, Lord. Here I am. Send me. How many of you know that passage? Okay, I need you to hear what God had already told Isaiah, what he knew he was volunteering to go say. It's not fun stuff that the crowd wants to hear. This is for Judah and Jerusalem. This is God saying, you've passed the point of no return. I have given you warnings, I have given you time to repent, and you will not obey me, so we're done. Of course, the individual people went, lived on in Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Jeremiah and Isaiah. They all lived, and they went, but the culture, the city, the government, the nation, their way of functioning, God's like, this has got to end because you're exporting evil to all the world. I'm going to read it 
I'm going to replace, every time it says Judah or Jerusalem or Zion, I'm going to say America. This was written 2,600 years ago, and I want you to see how jaw-droppingly accurate it is. So this is the Word of God from Isaiah 1 to 5, selected passages. See how America has become a harlot. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless, and the widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, I will avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you, and I will thoroughly remove all your sin. You welcome foreigners into your land, but you have abandoned my people. The Obama administration will not let any Christian refugees from Syria into the country, but they're welcoming Muslims. You reject my people, but you welcome foreigners. Your land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to your treasures. Well, if that doesn't apply to America, nothing does. Your land is full of horses. There is no end to your chariots. Think military strength. It's totally an idol in America. It is totally a source of false security. Think trucks, planes, ships. Our economy is full of horses. Your land is full of idols. You bow down to the work of your hands. You worship what your fingers made. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled, and I will not forgive them. Go into the rocks and hide in the ground from dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Washington staggers and America is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Could it be more accurate? They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Washington and from America both supply and support, all supplies of food and water. I will remove, listen to this, God says, I will remove the hero, the warrior, the judge, the prophet, the wise man, the elder, the captain of 50, and the man of rank, the counselor, and the skilled artist, and I will put boys in as their officials. Mere children will govern them. The word just means immature. Immature leaders is one of God's judgments. Because of a lack of authority, the people will oppress each other. Man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rebel against the old, and vulgar people will be insolent to the honorable. Children and women will rule over the people, and they will lead you astray. They will turn you from the path. The Lord says the women of America are haughty. They flirt with their eyes and skip along with ankle bracelets. Therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of America. The Lord will make your scalps bald. In that day, the Lord will snatch away their jewelry and bangles and headbands and necklaces and earrings and bracelets and veils and headdresses and ankle chains and sashes and perfume and charms and rings and nose rings and fine clothing and dresses and cloaks and purses and mirrors and linen garments and tiaras and shawls. Has there ever been a culture more obsessed with fashion and hair and jewelry and makeup and looking good than ours. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, the rope. Instead of styled hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of a beautiful face, they will have branded faces. Your men will fall by the sword, your warriors in battle, and America's women will lament and mourn. Woe to you who build bigger and bigger houses and buy up large estates. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate and the fine mansions left empty. 
Woe to those who get up early in the morning looking to drink of alcohol and stay up late at night to make themselves flaming drunk. You have elaborate parties and wild concerts, but you never think about the Lord or notice what he is doing. Is that not Hollywood and our entertainment in Nashville? And Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. But, Isaiah 3.11, But, tell the righteous, it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. That's Isaiah 1 to 5. That's what Isaiah knew he was volunteering to go tell Israel or Judah when God says, who will go for us? Whom shall I send? And I know that somebody in the room is going to say, oh, well, Mitch, that's Old Testament. God doesn't do that stuff anymore. Well, this is Isaiah. There's a lot of other verses in Isaiah that you like. (laughs) You like, arise, shine, your glory is come. You like, he bore our sicknesses and carried our diseases. Surely he was pierced for our sins and beaten for our transgressions. You like, I will make the wilderness a garden and I will water the waste places. You like, for unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given. Wonderful counselor, almighty God, prince of peace. You like all that and you're going to go through Isaiah and pick out the verses you think apply to you now and the ones that don't. No, we take it all. It's all the word of God. Some of you would say, well, Mitch, God isn't angry anymore. I've heard famous preachers say that that God isn't angry. If God isn't angry, he doesn't love us. If God isn't angry, he isn't holy. If God isn't angry, he isn't righteous. We have trespassed him farther than anybody could have imagined seven years ago. Farther than anybody could have imagined 40 years ago. We are not who we were 100 years ago. America's never been perfect, but there's a lot more open sin and haughty rebellion, blatant, public, in-your-face, unashamed sin than there has ever been in memory. God gives us the definition of what a false prophet is. He says, it's the one who says, peace, peace, when there is no peace. All of the true prophets in the Old Testament and then John the Baptist and Jesus and Peter and Paul and James and Jude, all of them warn us about what God will do if we don't obey. It is New Testament stuff, folks. New Testament stuff. Jesus said, it will be like Sodom. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. We're being brutally honest we will overcome, but we're being brutally honest about what we got to go through to get there. I want to read you a prophecy from Kenneth Hagin from 1963. Kenneth Hagin, 1963. I've updated the language because he speaks in King James when he prophesies. They used to do that. Thus saith the Lord. You know, so I've updated the language a little bit. But this is word for word right from him. The hand of the Lord was upon me. The Spirit of God moved upon me. The voice of God spoke unto me and said, Come up here, son of man. And I went up, as it were, into the air, and I stood with him, the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the air. And as I looked down upon the ground, I could see a map laid out before me of the entire nation, the continental United States. And as I looked up, he said, Behold, son, I will show you that which will come to pass, and that which the eyes of many shall see. And they shall remember that their ears heard it when it comes to pass. 
And there came a dark hand up out of the ocean from the east, and it came up out of the sea as a hand, and it rose into the air and became a dark cloud, and it filled the whole atmosphere. It swept in like a storm, and I said, O Lord, what is the meaning of this? And he said, Son, it is the darkness of atheistic communism that is sweeping across the nation, even in the minds of men in high places and politicians with great power. And this nation shall not grow more strong, and you shall not have more liberty than you have now. 1963, Jesus tells Kenneth Hagin, America will never be stronger or freer than it is right now. What has started in the early 60s, the sexual revolution, the decline of our culture. The liberties you've known and you have seen will be seized and taken from you. And I looked again and I could see the mountain, a blotch, as though a bottle of ink had been spilled and spread out over several states in the south and the east. And I looked and I could see spots splotched all over the map. And I said, Lord, what does this mean? And he said, communist-expired hatred among the races will cause greater turmoil than your nation has seen before. That came to pass in the 60s, and it's happening again. It's economic-inspired racism. It really is. It is not the will of God, but men's hearts are perverse, and they walk without the love of God, and they seek to have their own way. So it will be worse than you have ever seen. And I said, Lord, is there a remedy? What shall the answer be? And he said, evil men and seducers shall grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And I read you that verse earlier. And then I said, O Lord, do we have nothing to look forward to in the future except darkness and blackness and war and destruction and evil? And then I saw, falling upon the mountain, a ball of fire from heaven. The closer to the earth, the bigger it got. And then it came to the earth. It divided into small balls or sparks of fire, and it fell upon men. And I saw an army of men rise up, and it seemed as though their hands were on fire, and there sat upon their heads tongues of fire. When I first saw it, it seemed like their whole heads were on fire, but it was tongues of fire leaping upon their heads. And I said, what is this? And he said, before the worst shall come in the days of darkness and compasses, there shall be those who shall go and who shall carry the fullness of my truth in the fire, not only to these states of this nation, but in many other places. There was a work that must be done before the Lord shall come. Now prepare your hearts, for the time is at hand, and the beginning is now. And you shall see and you shall know that the hand of the Lord is upon you, and many of you will be used in these last days, and the work shall progress. The prophetic vision shall be restored to the church. For even in the days of old, under the old covenant, the prophet would see by vision and prophecy, and so the prophetic vision shall be restored to the church. This is the time, this is the hour, this is the place. Come on. Jesus shows Kenneth Hagin, hell's got some bad plans for America, but I have an answer. I will anoint my people with the Holy Spirit and fire, and you will go all over the nation. Not to, on a political crusade, or to support a party or an ideology, but to get people saved and filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Yes, Satan has some big plans. And they're very bad and it is stupid to ignore them or pretend like they're not happening and we're going to pay a real price to live through it. But we're not going to draw back and be cowards. We're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and fire and we're going to spread it all over the planet. I'm in a really good mood. I really am. Misty Edwards from IHOP in Kansas City has a dream that she has spoken about multiple times. You can go to YouTube and listen to her uh, talk about this at their One Thing conference uh, a couple of different times. She had a dream um, years ago 
where she was, she said, I was in a church and all the people were plastic and they were moving Mary mechanically. And she said, everything was fake and they were very happy. They were celebrating Jesus, but it was an attempt to be happy. It was fake. She said, it was gross and I had to get out of there because it wasn't real. She ran to the back of the sanctuary and out the back doors and she said, then there's this river flowing into a hole and she said the river was a bunch of box-like containers and it was the timeline of history. It was flowing in front of her and she saw in one of the boxes a Nazi soldier. That, that container represented the time of World War II. She said it flowed in the river and down into this hole and in this hole that she saw, there was, an, she says, an atomic explosion. And she said, these are her words, everything was code red. It was blood and violence and chaos and utter destruction. And I was terrified. And I couldn't get out of the fake church because this thing is in my way. And she said, an angel appeared next to me and he went down in the hole with me. And we went down in there and she said, I began to hear this pounding rhythm. And I turned around to see what it was. She said, and I saw Jesus. And he was running, he was appeared as a man, but he was running like a lion. He said he was running very muscularly. She said he had an intense look of vengeance on his face. He was seriously intense, and his, the rhythm was the pounding of his footsteps. If you know her music, you know where these, some of these songs come from. I can hear the rhythm of the Lion of Judah. And, and she's in the middle of this, she has a line in her, one of her songs where the only safe place is in the middle of the flame. She was in the middle of this atomic explosion of blood and war and chaos and violence and Jesus is with her and nothing is happening where they're at. But she said, I looked around and there's all this terrible stuff happening and I knew that Jesus was the one doing it. She said, I had no grid for that. That is not who I thought Jesus was. It's like Jesus is doing all this stuff in history. And and and, and so I want to read it because I don't want to quote it wrong. And, And she says, Jesus, what is going on? And he says, zeal for my house has consumed me. Zeal for my house has consumed me. She said, yes, Lord, yes, but there is no evil in you. If this is you, then what is evil? And Jesus, she said, he whipped, swept his arm out and he pointed and she looks over and there's a Buddhist monk doing a little topiary work with scissors on a plant. And it was totally peaceful, but it wasn't Jesus. She said it was a fake, eerie peace that was without Jesus, but I was in the midst of utter chaos and destruction with Jesus. As she sees the Buddhist monk, she says, Lord, if this is you and there's no evil in you, then what is evil? And he shows her this and he says at the same time, woe to those who call evil good and good evil in in that day and blessed are you if you are not offended because of me. That's scripture if you don't know that. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good in that day, and blessed are you if you are not offended because of me. And she said, real quick, I said, Lord, I'm not offended, I'm not offended. But if this is really you, what do you want me to do? And he said, sing, Zion, sing. Sing, Zion, sing. And she woke up. And she says that has defined everything. That was her call. That was defined everything she's done. All of the 24-hour, seven-day-a-week prayer that she has led and the albums she's put out and the worship songs that she writes. That is the, that vi- the dream is the beginning of it all. Another time she was in the 24-7 prayer room and in the middle of the night and they were praying and worshiping and she was said, I was interceding for America and I was praying for mercy on America. And God 
she said, the audible voice of God in my heart. She said, I don't say that lightly because I hardly ever hear anything like that. But she said, I heard it inside me. The audible voice of God as I'm praying for mercy on America, God interrupts her prayer and says, what is it to you if I raise up a man like an axe to judge my church? The Lord said, my shepherds are lying to my people. They lie about my deity. They lie about my humanity. They lie about my first coming and they lie about my second coming. What is it to you if I raise up a man as an axe in my hand? That's also scripture, Jeremiah 51.10. I will raise up a man as a battle axe. God called Jeremiah his battle axe. I'm here this morning to unfreeze you. I'm here to provoke you. (laughs) I'm here to blow the trumpet, and you can do what you want with it. Really, you can. I'm not going to be angry if you think I'm a total conspiracy theorist and I'm all wet. You can do whatever you want. But I'm here to tell you this morning, you need to get ready. You need to prepare. I I don't care if I'm as unpopular as Winston Churchill before World War II. (laughs) When he was telling everybody, get prepared, and everybody looked around and said, there is nothing to worry about. I'm here to tell you to be prepared. I'm not here to tell you to worry. I'm not here to tell you to be scared. I'm telling you to get prepared. To take brutal, honest stock of the situation that we're in and be prepared. Don't sit in frozen, inactive denial. Be ready, whatever you think that means. We're in for some trouble. I'm not talking about the end of America. I'm not talking about the second coming. I'm not saying we're all going to die. I'm not saying Christianity has been defeated and we should all give up. I'm saying we're in for some tough times. Directly ahead. We're already in it. But we're in for some tough times. We have built a lot of systems that are a house of cards. And at some point, it has to collapse. We are so in debt, it is incalculable. We are so dependent upon trucks and electricity to give us what we need for life that we cannot take care of ourselves if we didn't have them. And it will all fail at some point. So I say we need to prepare physically, we need to prepare emotionally, we need to prepare spiritually. Whatever you think that means. I'm not talking about storing up on ammo. If your first thought is to hoard and shoot, you're missing the point. Let me introduce you to Jesus. I think you should own a firearm and you should know how to use it. But if your first thought is to buy more guns instead of spend more time in prayer, I need to introduce you to Jesus. You should have a gun, and you should know how to use it. You should have a water source, not a filter, not a jug, a source that you can get to without electricity. You should have a heat source that does not require electricity. You should have not just stored up food. The Mormons are really good at storing food, but what are they going to do when they need to grow more? I mean, you need to have gardening skills and knowledge, canning, drying stuff so that... I've said this before, you should do this stuff anyway because we live in Northeast Oregon. I mean, when Sarah was, how old were you? Two weeks without electricity, junior high or high school. 88 was the big winter I hear about. I didn't live here then, but two weeks with no electricity. A snowstorm could shut down the trucks and Safeway and Walmart could be empty in three days. Seriously, you should do this anyway. Regardless of whether you think I'm a crackpot, about the world's systems and economies and governments and 
so on. You, should be, you, live in, you live in the mountains. You should be able to take care of yourself and your neighbors and your neighbors. Without electricity, without gasoline. Don't go out and buy a generator. If you don't have electricity, you don't have gas either. Hello? You're like, well, if the grocery stores fail, I'm a redneck. I can go up in the mountains and I can shoot my food. Not if you don't. If there's no groceries, there's no gas. You're not getting to the mountains unless you are actually fit and tough enough to walk up there and haul a deer home on your shoulders. That's not a backup plan. There's probably three guys in the room that could do that. The rest of us are too much. Extra weight. I'm talking about... If, you, if you're thinking about hoarding and fighting and shooting and protecting yourself, you're missing out. I'm talking about preparing to take care of yourself and your family and your neighbors, not defend yourself from your neighbors. We should always be, that's the scriptural command, always be ready to share. That's direct quote. Always be ready to share. We've got to prepare emotionally. For what's coming. Get over your nostalgia for whatever you think Mayberry used to be. All right? It's totally right and good to grieve whatever you've lost that you loved about your childhood in America. Sarah's cried so many times about the evil that has overtaken our culture and all that we used to be, the righteousness and godliness that was there, the unity that used to be there in our country that's all been lied about and covered up, erased from the history books. The history professors lie, lie, lie. Their version of America did not exist. It's totally right to grieve it. But you've got to get over your nostalgia. It will kill us. You've got to get over your denial and your ignorant optimism that's going to kill you. Things are changing faster than we can know. Can, could you have imagined where we would be seven years ago? That gay marriage would be legal and we would have men running as women in the Olympics. And it would be acceptable. That it would be publicly bragged about. Can you imagine, those of you around in the 90s, can you imagine that we would wish we had President Clinton back? (laughs) At the time, we thought he was the evilest president ever, and now it'd be a cakewalk to go back to the 90s. We've got to accept this. Get over your anger. Things that happen make my blood boil, but we have to get over it and live in the real world. Angry Facebook posts don't change anything. It is 2015. Quoting Thomas Jefferson isn't going to change anybody's mind. It's a new world, folks. We have got to live in it in reality. That's not a lack of faith. Remember Stockdale's quote, don't confuse faith with being brutally honest about where you're at. We're in denial and we call it faith. We've got to be flexible and adaptive and get ready for changes like we have never imagined. You know, Enoch lived in the evilest days in the history of the planet. And he successfully walked with God in peace and joy and righteousness. Even though he was the only 
one. You will never be completely alone in your faith. We've got a church family. There are billions of Christians on the planet. We will never be completely alone. But Enoch did it completely alone. Daniel had his life completely ripped out from under his feet. As an older teenage boy, his family is executed. He is castrated and he is carried off to a foreign nation. His home city is annihilated, literally wiped flat. And he doesn't waste any time crying about the past or wishing it hadn't happened or blaming God or asking God why. He just said, this is the new reality. I'm in Babylon. What do you want me to do, God? Yeah, okay, I'll serve the king that did it all to me. Come on. Lot and his wife had their reality completely ripped out from underneath them. Their home is destroyed. Lot's wife couldn't handle it. The angel said, do not look back. There was something in her that wanted that life in the past. And you know what? It was her daughters. Her daughters were married to men of Sodom. They were dying back there. And Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Do not turn around. You can love what you had. You can love what you remember. You can grieve its loss. But we can't have it as a priority in our heart when Jesus said it's time to come out. Joseph had his reality knocked out from underneath him. He could have been angry at, his, at the people that did it to him. You've ruined my life. You've changed my reality. And now I'm in Egypt. But instead he just says, God, how do I serve here? Come on. You can wish you lived back in the 50s or the 1800s or whatever it is you wish or you're angry about or whatever freedoms we've lost, whatever lies have been told by the liberal historians and politicians. You can be angry about it all or you can just accept that this is the new reality. Come on, I'm talking to a lot of you. I see your Facebook posts. You see mine too. I know. How can we serve God here? Get over yourself and your petty whining and your issues and get unified with Christ and His church. It is time for us to be unified. Come on, it is time for us to be unified. Can I talk another 10 minutes? Is it too late? I got something to say to those of you who want to talk down Christian America and Christian Catholic and say Catholics aren't Christians. I want to say this. Do you know that there was a Catholic priest murdered by ISIS a month and a half ago or so in France? He was doing mass, and two ISIS guys walk in and kill him. That is all that has ever been said in the media. Do you know that they went to the altar, they cut up his body, and offered it as a mock mass, as a mock sacrifice? They said in French the Catholic Mass, as they cut up the priest's body to mock Jesus. Don't ever tell me Catholics aren't Christians because the devil thinks they are. Some of you think that Pope is the Antichrist and Catholics are not Christians. If, that, if they were Satan's people, he wouldn't be fighting them. Jesus said so. Jesus said Satan is not divided against himself. Some of you want, just blow a gasket when somebody says that America was a Christian country. I understand that America was not the kingdom of God, but Al-Qaeda says America is a Christian country. 
and they want to destroy us. If Satan says we're a Christian country, then we are. Come on. Be careful who you judge. Get in unity. We've got to get over our issues and really, truly walk with Christ and his people. We've got to get over our fear. Stop being afraid. You signed your life on the dotted line. Mean it or not. We've got to stop being afraid. And we've got to prepare spiritually. Repent. Make sure your lamp is full of oil. Do not get caught off guard. We have to know the voice of the Holy Spirit. Misty Edwards says, the primary means for me to change the world is for me to know God. Because the truth is, you're not going to change the world, you're going to change you. And then you might impact some people that you know. Jesus did not die to change the world, so you're not going to either. Jesus died to save sinners. We give our life to do that. We have to know him. We have to know his voice. We have to be full of the power of the Holy Spirit. We have to display his power. America used to be a place that honored the church and pastors and the Bible. And if you went out and told somebody what the Bible said, they would care about that. But now nobody does. We cannot go out and argue with them out of Bible verses. But they'll listen. They'll, their eyes will open when they see spiritual power. This generation is all about spiritual power. They grew up with Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings and a bunch of other nasty stuff and they believe in spiritual power we can show them where it's really at we're not going to argue them into the kingdom or read bible verses to get them to come into the kingdom we will show them what is real and they will bow their knee and hit their face and then they will learn the truth and repent of sin we have to display his power we have to have faith we have to open our mouths and what's going to come out Songs and prayers and speeches. Come on. We sing. We sing our faith. We sing the Lord's praises. We sing like the Israeli army that went out with the worshipers first. Before the battle was fought. Because the battle belongs to the Lord. We open our mouth and we pray. We pray and we pray. And we speak to everyone, anyone, non-stop. We're speaking the truth, speaking warning, speaking love, speaking forgiveness, speaking truth. Prepare physically, prepare emotionally, prepare spiritually. I kind of feel like Winston Churchill in England because like, he couldn't tell them what Germany was going to do. They didn't know what it was going to look like, which is why the public by and large just ignored it. Churchill was sure something was coming, and he was totally right. I'm not here to tell you that I know what's coming. Something is coming. I see it. Something, and I know you do too. I see you nodding. I hear your amens. I know you see it. None of what I'm saying, nothing, should be interpreted anything like give up and die. America is over. The church is defeated. Let's just hole up and live out our lives in hiding. But we're going to have to go through something that is terribly hard. 
France and England and China and the Philippines and Korea all suffered immensely through World War II, but they lived through it. And they're still in existence. Come on. Hell unleashed all of its weapons. And they survived. We will too. But the days ahead are going to be rather hard. The harvest will happen. It will totally happen. But the Chinese church says this is their main slogan. The greater the persecution, the greater the revival. So those of you praying for revival, you better be careful what you're praying for. Because China knows how revival comes. It doesn't come with running around the room and flopping on the floor. It comes with government persecution. When people get serious about their faith and the truth. Eric Erickson said recently, One thing is for sure. A faith that survived its followers being used as torches to light the streets of Rome will survive a modern American age hell-bent on ruthlessly stamping us out. Come on. A faith that survived its followers being used as torches to light the streets of Rome, we will certainly survive a modern American age that is hell-bent on ruthlessly stamping us out. G.K. Chesterton said 120 years ago, Before Azusa Street and all those revivals, he says, at least five times in church history, the faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. But in all five cases, it was the dog that died. (laughs) Come on. At least five times in church history, it has looked like all hope was lost and Christianity had gone to the dogs. In all five cases, the dog died, not the church. Come on, Jesus will win. And we will be behind him, we will be with him. We're not going to cower down. We're not those who draw back. We're those who speak up and act up and love and touch and serve and heal. We will not be afraid of those who want to impose their sin on our nation. We will not be afraid of all the screaming and bluster of hell. We'll stick our finger in his face and say, you go back to where you came from. Lord Jesus, we love you, we bless you, we praise you. Thank you for adopting us into your kingdom. Thank you for saving us out of the world and into your glorious light. Lord, we commit this morning that we live for your kingdom alone. Forgive us for getting sidetracked in politics and issues and trying to save the world instead of trying to let you save us and loving our neighbor. Lord, forgive us for getting frozen in fear, for getting stuck in nostalgia or regret or anger about what's going on around us. Forgive us for being afraid to take action for your kingdom and for your name's sake and for your righteousness. Lord, we commit this morning, we will speak up for your truth. We will not be intimidated. We say with Paul, none of these things move us. No matter what the world and hell threaten against us, we will believe that you are victorious. And even though we give up our lives, we are still overcomers. Lord, we love our country. We bless our nation. But way more than that, Lord, we want your will to happen. And if it is your will to dismantle this thing and start over, 
to bring down the idols and systems of man that we have built, then we say yes and amen. Forgive us, Lord, for the idols that we bow down to in America that we're not even aware are idols. It is truly our heart, Lord, that we would be only for you. Remove anything you need to remove until we are solely and only for you. Lord, we love our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and our classmates and our students. Fill our mouths with boldness and our hands with your fire, our hearts with your love. Give us your bold love, Lord, that does not hold back in speaking the truth and in speaking warnings even, Lord. May we never be unloving cowards, but that we would be boldly loving to speak your truth and your love, your mercy and your grace and your warning to those around us. Forgive us for spreading anger. Forgive us for spreading fear. Lord, anoint us with the anointing you gave the sons of Issachar that we would understand the times and know what to do about it. Lord, may your wisdom flow out of your church. May the greatest answers to the world's greatest problems, may the most beautiful artistic creations, may the most wonderful unity and fellowship and community and love come out of your church. All the things the world seeks to counterfeit and is trying to look for, Lord, it's all in you. Forgive us for being disunified, for judging each other and nitpicking differences, for separating each other out instead of being unified in you. Lord, we pray for unity that we may wear your glory that the Father gave you, that the world may know that you are the Son of God, that you are the only way to eternal life that you are the only one who is victorious over the spirit of this world. Lord, display your glory on us so that your name will be famous and you will be able to draw more and more and more to yourself. We love you and we praise you. We bless you today in Jesus' name. Amen.